0: Hello and welcome to the Green Tea Party,
1: where we discuss conservative solutions to environmental problems. I'm Hannah Rogers.
0: My
2: name is Zach Torpy.
1: And I'm Katie Zakresky. Together we'll guide you through complex issues
2: and provide strategies to address them. All while remaining faithful to our conservative values.
1: Trust me, it'll be a good time.
2: Yeah, it's a party. So grab your mugs and we'll pour the tea.
1: Everybody, welcome back to the show. Halloween is coming up, and I have to tell everyone that since I have a black cat and a white cat, I've decided to make both of them be Michael Jackson for Halloween. One of them before he became white, and the other one for after. I don't know if you guys would love to see photos of both my cats being Michael Jackson for Halloween, but that's my plan.
2: Wow, we are starting this episode really strong
1: today. (laughs) I love that. Well, Do you guys have any plans for your cat's Halloween costumes? I just had to share mine. uh, So I was just talking about this yesterday with my fiance
2: about what to dress all of our pets up as, Um, and it seems like every time we settle on something, we end up changing it again. We have seven pets, so... (laughs) Yeah, I would have needed to have started like three months ago. So now I'm like, okay, what does
1: Target have last minute that, that can like grow onto my pants? Oh my gosh. What about you, Zach? What about you and your girlfriend? Are you guys going to be anything or are you going to...
0: Um... We, we did not plan our costume for a cat yet, but we are looking at Petco and seeing what we can get last second. <laughs>
1: I hope to see photos as soon as you guys have made up your minds on what you're going to dress your cats up as. Just for the listeners, I babysat a child a week ago, and this child gave me something that feels like the worst form of pneumonia you've ever had in your entire life, so I will be coughing a few times. Excuse me. I was
2: about to say, I, I'm. it sounds like in the, in the week that I was gone, um, you decided to get black lung, so... um i'm sure the air quality didn't help any it seems like that's been pretty bad over where you're at lately i've been getting alerts every day it is
1: horrible it is so awful and usually it gets worse in the winter time
2: and it's so hard to like be outdoorsy when it stops being like 400 degrees when the air quality is still as bad as it has been like i want to do nothing but go out and like fish and hunt and camp and i'm like am dead by three hours in because it's so like hazy and muggy.
1: Yeah, isn't that so sad that like we can't enjoy the natural world around us as much as we, our ancestors probably got to.
0: Need to start carrying inhalers just to go outside now.
1: Seriously. <laughs> well, speaking of you know, kind of enjoying the outdoors, this week's episode is all about our experience growing up conservative and caring about the environment, and kind of what that journey looks like. We know that we've given you a bit of background on ourselves before. But we figured we'd dedicate this episode to a deeper dive into what that kind of tension looks like and then how we resolved our conservative beliefs with our environmental beliefs. So, Katie, I want to talk to you first about your story. How did you get introduced to conservative values and environmental values? What was your background growing up? I know you originally started as a climate denier. And how did you end up here?
2: (laughs) Well, um, it's a much longer story than what this episode will allow for. So I'll stick to the high points. But I grew up in a really traditional, really conservative Catholic family here in the South. And I'd always been conservative. I used to be a lot further right than I am right now. And I remember in 2014, when Trump announced that he'd be running for president. That's kind of when I went off the rails. I was like mega conservative Trump train mode for better or for worse. We can dive into that into a future episode. Um, But I think because that was the really popular rhetoric at the time, I was like, "Uh, climate change is not real. Climate change is a big government conspiracy used by quote, quote scientists to have an excuse to tax you and control your income and things like that. Like now, I I, for me in my brain, and maybe even so to this day, there's a difference between environmentalism and climate activism. And I think that climate is like very science heavy. Whereas, you know, I grew up in a family of gardeners and farmers. And I remember like some of my youngest memories are being on my on my hands and knees in my front yard with my grandpa, and we're looking for four-leaf clovers, and he's telling me all about the Farmer's Almanac. And, you know, you can smell rain when you're from the South and things like that. So I think that there were always components of environment. And for me, that was good enough, like hunting and fishing and doing things of that nature. We didn't need the science to be thrown into it. And I remember freshman year of college, I was in a class called Science and Society. And our professor did a really good job of not telling us what the answer was, but giving us things to read from different perspectives and telling us, hey, just just read these things and then tell me what you think when you come back. And I would read all of these, these stats, all these statistics, all this data, all these reports from 30, 40, 50 years ago, all the way through the present. I remember I kept reaching out to really popular, I, I guess I say that, but like well-known climate deniers in my community and that I had like grown up with in my church community um, and at my old school. And I would like ask them these questions because I wanted to be able to refute whenever my professor would bring it up in class. And they didn't have answers for a lot of the things that I was asking them. or the answers just didn't make sense. It just kind of seemed like a straw man. After reading this and doing even more research, I think, for this course than I did for any other course, I had to finally sit down like that first week of December and I was like, okay everything that I have found, and I'm not a scientist, but everything that I have found is like, kind of lining up with what I've been reading this whole time. And this all makes sense to me. And so it kind of be dumb of me to like, (laughs) to, to not say, okay, you know, it doesn't take an expert to see that 50 to 100 years worth of data is all pointing towards the same thing. And we're seeing it every single day. And so when that eureka moment happened, I felt so bad that I had been like, using whatever platforms that I had or whatever position that I had in the community to talk really badly about climate change. And I was like, well, now I'm going to, you know, double the effort in making up for what I failed to do before and got really involved with um, the Sierra club, Audubon, Arkansas, um, citizens climate lobby um, pretty much every environmental org that you could think of. I had originally just started as like a ghostwriter for them. But the more that I wrote, the more that I realized, you know, a lot of conservatives aren't on board with this, because there's nobody translating the language into a way that's friendly for conservatives to understand in terms of fiscal benefits, um, economic benefits, religious tie-ins, things like that. And so I started taking it upon myself to do a lot of that translating, if you will. And I saw that that was where the missing link was, not just in my community, but it seemed nationally as well.
1: You know what I feel like was the hardest thing for me about climate change is I felt like it was kind of this whipping stick or just Mm. this weapon that the left would use to humiliate people on the right, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense, to make Mm -hmm. them feel stupid. Of course, like, that's going to shut any conservative down. If you're tired of someone telling you that you're stupid or naive or thinking this way. So, of course, your your reaction to that is going to be really strong. And I feel like I kind of relate to you growing up. I grew up not really believing as much in climate change. I also had a transformation. So, tell me a little bit more about like what is it like to be in the mind of a conservative? Like what are your values? What do you value the most that may have had a contention with environmentalism? And like what was that like personally for you?
2: Well, I think that a lot of and this is something that I've noticed with older conservatives. I actually had a debate with my dad about this Friday night. I think that for a lot of older conservatives, they think that the end goal of environmentalism and climate activism is to convert you to being a liberal. Like, they, they think that that's the end goal, that you're supposed to show up at Thanksgiving and tell everybody that they should have voted for Biden or whatever. And that's not the end goal. You can still be a conservative and be an environmentalist. And I think that for me, the link between them, in spite of how much media and Folks on either side try to say that they're at odds with each other. They're not. I know that a lot of conservatives are religious. For me, this is very much a pro-life issue. I've said that in previous episodes, and I'm going to mm-hmm. continue to say that. Um, you can't say that you're pro-life and you want people to have a good quality life when they don't have clean air, when they don't have clean water, um, mm-hmm. when 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 the place that they're living is on fire, when they can't grow crops. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's illogical. It doesn't add up. Like This is why this is very much a conservative issue. And I think that also... It's an economic issue and that's conservatives wheelhouse. I, I don't, I tell people, I don't, you know, we, we don't have to talk science and numbers because I'm not a scientist. I can't explain a graph or a chart or the science or the numbers for you. I'm not going to, I'm not a scientist. I'm not going to pretend to be a scientist, but what I do know is I pay taxes and I work a job to make money. And mm-hmm. if the sun's going to come up in the East and go down in the West, last I checked every single day since the dawn of this planet's creation, You might as well make money off of that and create jobs off of that and take advantage of the world around you to make yeah. money off of that and make jobs. I mean, I just, I just don't know why, you, you know, like this is, this is conservatives wheelhouse, fiscal
1: responsibility, like plug it in here and make it drive. Like I yes. that, so that's, that's my thing. I love what you're saying because one thing that bothers me so much as a conservative about fiscal responsibility is I am not the biggest fan of subsidies mm-hmm. anyway, but I'm especially angered about fossil fuel subsidies because I don't like my tax dollars going to subsidize abortion. Mm-hmm. So I also don't like my tax dollars going to subsidize the climate crisis. Right. Mm-hmm. That is not fiscally responsible. That is not fiscally conservative for me to allow my government to spend billions of dollars on subsidizing a crisis.
2: I completely agree. And I think that that's even more reason why conservatives need to get to the table on this issue. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, for years, they were like, Oh, well, it's a fad, it'll go out of style. It's not. And if you don't get to the table, you're going to have people on the left coming up with the Green New Deal part two. And it's just going to be way out of the ballpark of being feasible or responsible for low income blue collar conservatives, just get to the table so you can negotiate your say in it. Like that's my big thing.
1: The best environmental advocacy and the best environmental efforts happen on small local scales. I am not a big fan of the left having these large federal government handing down what we should be doing with our environment. The people who are closest to the environment that they're being impacted by are the best people to make decisions about that land. Personally, yeah, I
2: don't I don't want somebody in a skyscraper in New York telling me how farmland works. Like if you've never seen a cow, don't, don't tell me. Don't After tell that. me how farmland works. I think, I
0: think you guys are making great points conservatives need to join the conversation and just insert themselves so that people can hear their opinions and find a good middle ground and bring a diversity of thought instead of the, there's only one solution that we all have to follow and it's only this. And you're getting yelled at and talked down to by people on opposite sides of the country who have never seen the middle of the country and never stepped foot in your life.
1: Exactly. I mean, I hate to say it, but I've worked for the government before and the people in government, it's not that they don't care It's just, there's so much red tape, so much Mm -hmm. bureaucracy. They don't have the capacity to care on an individual level as well as small local government does. So Mm -hmm. firstly, I would not be taking my environmental problems up with the large government. Oh, Katie, I forgot to ask you. So this was one thing that I feel like growing up, trying to find my identity, especially politically, because it was very important to me to figure out how I felt about government growing up. I was very interested in the environment and the only representation on the right side of the aisle of environmentalism within the right was far right extremist environmentalists. (laughs) And I was like, can there be anyone who is not crazy who cares about the environment on the right side of the aisle? I'm talking about like Thomas Malthus. I mean, there, There's a lot of, like, very borderline fascist environmentalists who would use the environment as an excuse to, like, mm-hmm. commit horrible crimes against humanity. I'm not a fan of fascism, obviously. I don't think it's American at all to be that way. But... It was interesting to just see how oftentimes there was never really like a good role model for me besides like Teddy Roosevelt's. That was obvious to me growing up. And did you have someone that you looked up to within conservative environmentalism?
2: Primarily, it was always my grandfather. I lived next door to my grandfather growing up. He immigrated from Poland, was a farmer his whole life, continued to garden within a, a city setting. I just remember thinking, you know, if everybody was cool about it, like him, where you like, you minded your business, you did the right thing, not because anybody told you to do it, but because it was the right thing to do, then I think that a lot of the problems that we have today wouldn't exist. And I know that that was the hallmark of Ronald Reagan's Citizens First ideology when it came to the environment.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: You know, whenever he was out tending his ranch, he would tell anybody who asked, you know, if we just pick up the environment around us. If we pick up the trash, if we don't litter, if we take care of the world around us, we don't need the government to step in and do it for us. If you
1: just
2: yes. you found it, you don't need big government overreaches. And I saw a lot of that in my own grandfather, whether he knew it or not. And that's always kind of been the hallmark to me, you know, and I, I think that so much activism these days is mired by the, Oh, I want to be a hero. I want to be on a poster. If you're only doing a good thing for a reward or recognition,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: then the good thing won't last. And I think that the hallmark of true conservative environmentalism is doing the right thing and leaving a place better than you found it, whether or not anybody recognizes you for that effort. I think all of that is just summarized by a plaque that Ronald Reagan had on his desk that I I printed a picture of and I keep it on my desk in some horrible, you know, I wish I was Ronald Reagan kind of thing. And the plaque says... There is no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. So, I love that. If we took that mentality for environmentalism and like ran with it, we, we would be leagues ahead of where we are now.
1: Katie, I'm so impressed by just your down-to-earth, <laughs> common-sense attitude about conservative environmentalism. I feel like, to me, that really stresses how conservatives get so frustrated by environmental virtue signaling, right. if that makes sense. I don't like the idea that you're a better person just because you sort your recycling. I think it's a really big turnoff for a lot of conservatives. And so sometimes conservatives will be like, well, I'm not going to sort my recycling because these liberal hippies are like sorting their recycling to like look down their noses at me. Right. For me, it's like, no, we should start our recycling because it's the responsible thing to do, right? Right.
2: Well, thank you. And, and Hannah, you we've talked a lot about your
1: story in the past. Tell us a little bit about you. Okay, so I always had just like a burning passion for the environment. I don't know who I can credit to in terms of my parents. I want to say it was probably more my dad than my mom. Mm-hmm. But my dad would take me on these hikes growing up, and he would spend so much time talking about just the littlest things he'd point out the lichen on a rock and just tell me about this specific species of lichen. Or he'd point out a bird and just tell me about these birds. I have always had the deepest love for animals, especially because I had this cat growing up that I had a very special bond with. I have a very special bond with my cat today. But I just remember watching Planet Earth and David Attenborough is going, yeah, like if we don't care about the environment, we don't take care of the environment, these animals are going to suffer. And I had this like... Oh my gosh, <laughs> like, <laughs> if I don't pick up my litter, the, I, you know, these animals who are exactly like my cat are going to suffer. Aww. I'm also like very pro-life in the sense that I realized that if I care so much about the sanctity of life in the womb, I have to care about the sanctity of life after the womb, right? <laughs> and then <laughs> far beyond that, I was really driven by that as well. I'm also very religious, and I grew up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints actually has a very strong relationship with the Boy Scouts of America, which Mm. is also a very environmentally-minded organization. Being raised religious and then also being raised with brothers and my dad, who was very involved with the Boy Scouts, I just always had that environmental and conservative background. And then climate change really came into focus with me when I started, well, very first when I watched Bambi and then there was Al Gore's *An Inconvenient Truth, right? That scared <laughs> the crap out of me. As if Bambi then, wasn't
2: scary enough way <laughs> it starts,
1: No, that, Bambi's what got me into animals. Then Al Gore's what got me into climate change. Then I just like started reading about it. I remember driving to elementary school and then to junior high and even to high school every day. And I've turned the point of the mountain I'd look over the valley and I'd see this really thick mat of just smog hanging over this land that I loved so much. I remember looking at that and just feeling like, man, like this is so sad that I live somewhere that is so beautiful and is tainted by this smog that's in the atmosphere. So I would just get angry every day driving to school. And then my elementary school teachers, my junior high teachers would talk about climate change in the classroom. And I would be like, this thick mat of smog that is hanging over my hometown is causing climate change. And so it was just kind of always there for me. On the side of spirituality, I have a very deep belief in Jesus and Jesus's teachings. In the Bible, Jesus Christ talks a lot about being grateful for what you have and also not being materialistic. I think being materialistic and consumption oriented is antithetical to the cr- teachings of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so I really dug deeper into environmentalism by recognizing that by being environmentally conscious, I was, and not being materialistic and not being consumption oriented, I was actually deepening my relationship with my savior, Jesus Christ. That's where environmentalism and spirituality and then also conservatism just all came into one nice, beautiful package for me. It's kind of just been like my, the driving force of my life since then. So, yeah. So, Zach, we have to get to you now. Tell us a little bit about your background. What kind of brand of conservative are you? And what brings you to the, this specific table?
0: I'm a brand of conservative where I very much believe in individualism and taking care of yourself, being self-sufficient, relying on the government for as little as possible, and trying to become independent of what they do. From an environmental perspective, what really drew me into the environment was learning about like Teddy Roosevelt and all the work he did as the first like truly great like conservationist president. He went out there and built all the parks and helped begin the saving of America's natural environment, which is something that we should cherish and really love because this is something like the continent of Europe just has lost and they have very little natural environment left. We have so much and such a beautiful natural ecosystem that we should really uh, take advantage of and
3: learn to enjoy Oldest, largest, and one of our most beautiful vacation lands is Yellowstone National Park. Antelope feed peacefully on grassy slopes. Woof, woof, a black bear! But don't worry, he's friendly, he won't bother you. For many years, Old Faithful has played with average regularity every 65 minutes. It's a majestic, awe-inspiring sight, reaching up with a plume of white steam that towers above everything and seems to dominate the world. Four-fifths of Yellowstone is thick with forest, but you can see waterfalls twice as high as famed Niagara Falls, and you'll tingle with excitement as the water plunges down, down in its tireless journey to the sea. If you want to see grizzly bears, you come here to the bear feeding grounds. An armed ranger is on guard and you'll be perfectly safe. Herds of buffalo live in these mountains, a symbol of our vanished frontier. The early pioneers pushed their way laboriously across this country. But it's only in our great national parks that we've preserved unchanged the really wild things and the immense wilderness they knew.
0: For my environmentalism, I really started with watching Steve Irwin and learning about all these animals across the world and (laughs) how they were being destroyed. And as a conservative, it's important to be individualistic, but to put a hand down to help the person below you. And I think with animals, they have no voice. They have no way to help themselves. So it's important as a conservative and environmentalist to put your hand down and help lift lift them up as they struggle through the world that we are creating and developing.
1: Zach, that is amazing. And that is literally how I feel about animals. And I feel like we have a moral obligation to help them because we're creating the world that they're living in. Did you start out as a conservative or as an environmental first? Like how did your political identity develop?
0: I was raised as a conservative. My entire family is very conservative. And I grew up going to a church, an Episcopalian church and reading the Bible. I was an altar boy. I would say this sort of developed together, but i lean more towards the environmentalistic. I went to like a nature camp as a kid. I used to go to a, a sleepaway camp where we'd hike in the Appalachian Mountains. The sort of motto of that camp was the other fellow first, or just help the other person get ahead and keep help everyone else around you. Hmm. So my conservative values, I sort of developed from my dad and just like, we always talked politics and talked about how we should be self-sufficient, how the government causes a lot of interference and just does a lot of things inefficiently,
1: mm-hmm.
0: a lot of times they can slow down the development of programs and people in business. I was a big history buff, so I loved Teddy Roosevelt and I loved reading biographies from Teddy Roosevelt and all the work he did to help build the environmental movement and really was, I think, the one of the greatest Americans ever.
1: Yeah. So tell me, are there hobbies and activities that you engage in that kind of overlap with your conservative self-reliance? ideas and kind of identity, and then also overlap with with your environmental identity? What are those activities that you participate in?
0: I try to farm or I try to grow cr- grow like tomatoes in my, my apartment, basil. I would like to get to a point in my life where I've land to grow my own food and be a little more self-sufficient, get like a chicken coop and just provide for myself without needing to rely on big corporations, like going to the supermarket and relying on uh, just imported food from across the country. Really just going out into the living in the environment, hiking, being out there, and enjoying what nature has provided us and enjoying the world around us. Taking advantage of the great national parks that we have developed in America and enjoying what I think is like an American pastime in the environment. I hope to start getting out camping next year when I can get a nice tent.
1: (laughs) I love that, me too. Okay, so that is the end of our show for today. So for our listeners, please email us with your thoughts. Our email address is info at greenteapartyradio.com. And we have an action step for you. Along with sharing this episode with anyone who you think would be interested in it, we have a book suggestion. Read A Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. This book is all about political identity and developing your own political identity. And then also recognizing that there is more overlap than there is gridlock.
2: Thank you for listening to Green Tea Party Radio
1: and a very special thank you to all of our patrons. We couldn't do this without you. If you're interested in getting early access to episodes as well as Green Tea Party Radio merch, check us out at greenteapartyradio.com. If you have feedback, tell us what's on your mind. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Just so you know, this is a passion project. We don't have any organizational sponsor. We're building a movement because we want the world to know that conservatives have important things to say about climate change.
0: And if you want to hear our show on your college radio station, email us at info at greenteapartyradio.com. Give us the details about your campus and your radio station. That email again is info at greenteapartyradio.com.
1: Thank you guys so much. I love you guys very dearly. <laughs>
2: Bye. <laughs> Thanks for I don't know, why I
1: said Thanks that everybody. so weirdly, but I do. <laughs> say...
2: <laughs> Thanks again, everybody.
4: Hi, I'm Drew Iyerly. I am the Conservative Outreach Director for Citizens Climate Lobby. My path to being a conservative, concerned about climate action, was definitely a long one. Growing up, it's a very rural area. You had to be into the outdoors or you were gonna be bored out of your mind. So I grew up doing a lot of hunting, fishing. I was the only the, the second person on my mom's side to graduate high school. I graduated June 6th, 05, at like 7.30 at night. And by eight o'clock the next morning, I was on my way to basic training on my 17th birthday. <laughs> I had deployments to Iraq, Afghanistan, rotations through Cuba. It was during this time that I really became concerned with energy infrastructure, but I wasn't ready to take action yet. It took the birth of a 10-pound baby girl with cheeks so big she couldn't open her eyes to really get me to open mine. My life just went from the next 50 years to the next 75. What if she's the veteran that follows in my footsteps and she's in the VA suffering from exposure, You know, what if she's on a fossil fuel route and, you know, subject to an IED? How will I be able to look at her in the eye and say, I knew that this could be an issue that you would have to face and I chose to do nothing about it? It's why we fight wars, you know, we fight them now so our kids don't have to. I am fighting climate change now so my daughters don't have to. A lot of people, you know, they say conservatives don't care about climate change and, you know, not true at all. We just want sensible policies that don't destroy the economy in trying to find a solution. We have that here at Citizens Climate Lobby. There are a lot of leadership opportunities for conservatives, especially in red states and districts with Republican congressional offices. Conservatives can also join CCL's conservative caucus. It's a national group of Republicans and other right-of-center individuals where conservatives can get together and regularly meet online and have strictly conservative-based conversations. Sharing our personal story is how we make a difference. Conservative and concerned about climate change? You're not alone. My name is Chelsea Henderson, and I host
1: RepublicEN.org's EcoRight Speaks, bringing you weekly guest interviews and stories. John Kasich, Christine Todd-Whitman, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, meteorologist Marshall Shepard. Each week, we have a conversation with an EcoRight leader, bringing you information, opinions, personal stories, and much, much more. Download, listen, subscribe, and join us each week on the Right Speaks.